Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. everybody welcome to another episode of bitches on comics i am here me sarah century i am here with <laughs> me S. the S. other Fredor, one the other other <laughs> other host the other 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 host i was picturing us as bitches standing on top of comics when you said that and for some reason that's the <laughs> cutest thing i've ever thought of as us as little characters standing Aww. on comics Aww. someone make some fan art I am extremely excited. Today, we have the one and only Sarah Gailey here with us. It's a double Sarah sandwich, and I'm pretty excited about it. (laughs) Hi, Sarah. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me to this sandwich. Uh, I will not lie to you. There are times when I can't sleep at night, and I do just imagine myself between two big slices of bread, and it helps quite a bit. I still can't sleep, but I'm thinking about bread, so you know. (laughs) Bread is a comforting thought, so I get it. I get it. Who among us hasn't wanted to just nestle down into the middle of a baguette (laughs) and then, like, close the top half of the baguette over the top of us like a coffin? (laughs) That's the dream. That's that's everything I want to do with my life. Scratch our whole agenda for today. I need details. We're just talking about this. Is there going to be cheese in there? Do you want the melty warmth of the cheese? Is a ham like a blanket that you pull on? I think it's like a banh mi. So there's like a little like pate bottom sheet underneath. And then the kind of like pork and greens on top. Um, Sort of like American beauty style just raining down on me while I'm on my bread mattress. (laughs) I also... Sorry, this is going to get dark for a second. I'm doing my end of life planning because, you know, um, the Why not? Is, is the way it is. And my lawyer, bless him, sent me this form. He was like, just fill this out. That'll get us started. And I had to say, like, you know, do you have money? No. Do you have items? <laughs> a couple. And then it, the thing that stopped me for months on this was, what do you want to happen with your body after you die? Yes. And I was just sitting there staring at it like, oh, my God, I have no idea. Like, because I'm, I'm not using it, but I'm deciding on behalf of... <laughs> whoever's stuck with my corpse, like what they're going to do with it. And like a dumb asshole, I didn't say, bake a huge baguette, seal me (laughs) up in it. You know, I think you need to go revise your your last will and testament. Take it to Quiznos. (laughs) And then whatever you do with the sandwich after that is your business. 
<laughs> Quiznos is like, oh no, no, <laughs> not no, again. No, no, no. We will not honor another one of these. We have learned our mistake. <laughs> That's how they can outstrip Subway, though. I'm thinking they've already outstripped the Subway. Like, listen, eat oh. fresh, have a good death. What else is this? <laughs> It's like, wow, Quiznos got real. <laughs> Toast Quiznos got honor. real. Toast, Toast Quiznos got honor! Oh my God. <laughs> wow, well, this is one of my favorite intros to an episode <laughs> ever. Yeah, so Sarah, besides, you know, your ideation around being baked into a sandwich of Quiznos, <laughs> what else are you up to? What, what do you do in the world? In addition to being an imagineer in the world of bread, <laughs> I am an author. Um, I write way too much. I write mostly, no, I was going to say mostly novels, but that's just because it's what I'm writing now. So I feel like I'm immersed in it. Um, I write fiction and nonfiction of pretty much all lengths. My most recent work includes Upright Women Wanted, which is a novella about anti-fascist spy librarians on horseback in the near future Southwest. And The Echo Wife, which is a science fiction novel about a woman who is confronted with her own clone. Yep. Love it. Perfect. <laughs> no notes. No notes. Which is good because they're out and wouldn't be helpful to have notes now. Amazing. And then, Sarah, you have this new project, which is why we are here today. It's a comic called Eat the Rich. And we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about the, the issue that we've gotten to read, which, oh my God, oh my God, is so good. But first I want to talk about like, where do comics fit into your landscape? Like I know you as a novel author, short story writer, you love science fiction and fantasy. It seems, I mean, maybe you hate it and just write it because you're furious, <laughs> but that seems <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> so how did comics come into your sphere of nerddom? I had the immense good fortune of being invited to write Steven Universe comics a few years ago. My first editor at Boom Studios, Matt Levine, who is no longer with Boom, but is just an absolute genius, contacted me and was like, would you be interested in writing comics? And I was like, no, nah, that seems hard, which is kind of what I've said about everything I've ended up writing. Not six years ago, I said to my now literary agent, I will never write novels. They're way too hard. And everyone I know who writes them seems miserable. And with comics, I was like, listen, I love reading comics, but I don't know how to fucking write comics. That's witchcraft. How do you do that? And Matt, bless him, very patiently said, you already have the skills you need to do this. You, you can do it. I'm not going to make you draw the comics. And I said, that's the best for everybody. And as we were talking about original pitches, I was kind of coming up with concepts. He said, would you have any interest in, have you heard of, would you perhaps want to write for a show called Steven Universe? And I lost my goddamn mind. Because of course I love Steven Universe. Like it's everything that I love. It's got trauma. It's queer. People are sad and upset a lot. Like and then so also much crying. French fries. So much yeah. crying. Crying and French fries. What else do you need? It's like all my passions. That's just me PMSing. <laughs> um, That's just all my passions. <laughs> and so I said, "Holy shit! Yes, I would love to write for Steven Universe." And I got to do a four issue run. And during that run, I mean, what a great way to get into comics because I was working with a beloved IP that I already was a huge fan of with well-developed characters and a lot of room for me to explore complex themes. And as I was writing, I realized that comics are so much fun to write and that I could do creative things that I can't do in prose because, you know, of course, I'm collaborating with 
artists who bring a whole other level and layer to the narrative I'm putting together. So that four-issue run came out, I think, did pretty well. I had a great time with it. Everyone who I've talked to about it liked it, but that's because I don't talk to people who don't like my work because life is too short. (laughs) Um, And as I was writing those, Matt and I were chatting about this concept I had for an original property about cannibalism and capitalism and how they're not so different. (laughs) Yeah, they're not so different, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Did you find that there was kind of a learning curve whenever it came to working with artists? Both Essie and I are also fiction writers, and it's definitely a thing of like, I'm switching to this format. I'm switching from short story to novel, I think, is even a hugely different approach. But with comics, it might be a little more complex because you're definitely kind of sending it out into the world and then being like, okay, so then there's going to be a penciler, like an inker, colorist, like a letter. <laughs> yeah. Was there like a learning curve for you? Um, yes, but it was over such a long period of time that it didn't feel like a steep one. Mm-hmm. I am extremely lucky in my community and friendships, and I'm friends with a few different comics writers. And so when I was getting ready to write comic scripts, I talked to them and said, you know, and and, and all, uh, comics writers and also um, illustrators, I talked to them and basically said, hey, what's a pain in the ass in a script? What do you hate? <laughs> you know, if, if your writer puts something in a script that's just going to make you rip your eyeballs out, what is it? And I sort of stockpiled all that information ahead of time before starting my first script so that I knew things like, You know, don't write that a character needs to be in motion for a medium without moving pictures in it. Right. You know, keep the dialogue in each panel to a certain amount so that visually you don't have these huge chunks of text taking up the space. Mm. Trust the artist and leave room for them to make decisions that kind of require an artistic eye. I also, on Eat the Rich, I'm working with the incredible incredible Pius Bach for uh, mm-hmm. illustration and Roman Titov for colors. And I get to lean so much weight on trusting them. So many places in my scripts, I kind of just punt. I'm like, here's what I want to communicate. Here's some ideas I have for how that might work. But I trust Pius to know how best to execute that. And I'm never, ever, ever disappointed in the outcome. Yeah, it's one of those books where you can just see a lot of synergy between the creative team, which is always, I've been reading comics my entire life as (laughs) longtime listeners will know because I talk about it constantly. But (laughs) yeah, it basically like, I always think that whenever there's conflict between creators, you get an uneven story, you know? And so whenever there's people are just kind of taking the baton, you know, and like moving on and doing like their own thing with the story. I think that it just brings a lot to the background of the book and comics might be one of the mediums where that's the most evident, right? Like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And I feel, I feel so fortunate um, that when the original editor, Matt Levine was talking to different illustrators, he thought of Pius and just said, I think that the Pius's style is going to work perfectly with what you are trying to communicate in your writing. And I was like, I don't know, I trust you. Like I, a lot of this process for me has been about trusting my team. My team has carried me so far just because I work with such competent people that I can say, I trust you to know what you're doing, which is my favorite way to work. I hate having to know how things are done. I love being able to just be like, (laughs) you have all the expertise, you have all the knowledge. I'm not going to try and meddle in that. Yeah, for sure. I think that things work out a lot better that way, too. 
It seems like in your novels as well, even if it's like a sci-fi novel, which I think is maybe what The Echo Wife would fit into, there still are a lot of horror themes on it. And I read in an interview that Benicula was the first book that you got really into. (laughs) Um, I love Benicula, so I'm happy to talk about that, you know, for like the rest of the interview if you want. Yeah, let's just um, do that. That's perfect. (laughs) Benicula was definitely my horror route. (laughs) Yeah, and then there was like the second book, which was even scarier, right? Where they were like taken to the pet hotel. (laughs) But I was just curious, kind of on the same level of how you got into comics, how did you get into horror? Was that something that was a big thing for you? Or are there certain kinds of horror that you've gravitated towards? Or I've been thinking about this a lot because for a while I would have said that I wasn't that into horror. And then I look back at all my interests <laughs> and creative work for it throughout my entire life. And I'm like, oh yeah, you are. <laughs> That's also kind of my sneaky secret is that everything I write, with the exception of the Steven Universe run, is horror. Everything I write is horror. And The sales and marketing teams at my publishers are responsible for saying what genre in the bookstore a book is going to go in, right? (laughs) Where you go when you walk into the last Barnes & Noble on Earth and try to find my books. That's not up to me. But when I'm writing, everything I'm writing is horror because life is so goddamn scary. The Benicula thing, I, I love that book so much. It is the book that made my partner want to learn how to read when they were a kid. Um, They were so upset because they couldn't read the book with the vampire bunny on the cover that they insisted on learning how to read. And I also got to write a piece on Benicula and the history of Benicula for BNN.com, their sci-fi fantasy blog, uh, Rest in Peace. And the history of that book is incredibly beautiful and sad. When I think back to like what first got me started down this road of everything that I do being rooted in horror. It's that. I mean, it's it's that book. It's a book that's not condescending. It's a book that's earnest and honest about things being scary, whether they need to be scary or not. It's a book that's funny and fun to read. The horror that I gravitate away from is horror that's not enjoyable to consume, which I know sounds pretty uh, reductive. Like, I don't like eating food that tastes bad. But like, I love horror that makes me feel amazed and alive and vibrant and sweaty all over. I'm looking at you, Jordan Peele. Everything that that man makes just causes me to perspire. And that's the stuff that I love. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I feel like horror is this genre that has always been so, so political, right? Like, it's always been so rooted in politics. I think even, like, Yeah, obviously Frankenstein, right? Like from beginning of genre, like this is something that has been seeded into it. And it's so interesting because so often you'll see people do the like, I don't want any politics in my horror, (laughs) like whatever like that. And it's just like, well, but it's always been there and it doesn't really make sense for you to have this criticism, right? It's kind of the same with comics because I feel like comics have... Not always, but often been like left leaning or progressive in some way. So it's like, I'm always a little bit baffled by that. But do you feel like there's been more of a resurgence lately in social justice themes and horror? Or is it just something that's just intrinsic to the genre? This is a question that I've been asking myself lately about all media. I've been going back and doing some rewatches of like older stuff. And when I go back and I watch things from like the 70s and 80s, 
there's content in media from that time period that makes me go, whoa, they're saying the quiet part loud. Like people will just talk about racism. People will just talk about sexism. People will just talk about homophobia and transphobia in different ways than my community and I tend to talk about those things now, but in ways that are still like, you know, pretty confrontational and direct. And I feel almost like there was a Reagan era dip in our comfort with talking about social justice issues, which is a phrase that now always leaves a bad taste in my mouth because the language of social justice gets consistently watered down by like the desperate maneuvering of groups who want us not to talk about it seriously. I feel like there was this period of time where we were like, we're not going to talk about that stuff in media. And if we do, we're going to allude to it. We're going to come at it really sideways. We're going to you know, insist that there's nuance to issues that there isn't that much nuance to. And it almost feels like we're climbing up out of that hole right now, injured by having fallen into it. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective, but I do agree. I think that that's something that we come up with again and again, where it's just like, no, this comic is from like almost 100 years ago. (laughs) It's like (laughs) really strong political themes, you know, and like also... They're not messing around, you know, they're definitely saying, I think this is wrong, you know, and all of that. And I feel like obviously we should be really a lot more comfortable saying when things are just kind of intrinsically and obviously wrong. What were some of the inspirations that you were bringing to the table whenever you were coming up with the ideas for Eat the Rich? Because as you noted, um, cannibalism and capitalism being so similar, there's medias that have touched on that, but it looks like Eat the Rich is doing it in kind of a different way. So I'm just curious, were there things you know on your table and on your desk while you were going into this that made you want to tell this story? Yeah, just a framed photograph of Jeff Bezos with the eyes scratched out. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, going to space. Yeah. Uh, just uh-huh. like, no, oh, have fun, Jeff. Yeah. I mean, obviously the like swarming spiral of late stage capitalism just blooming before our eyes over the course of the last decade was on my mind, I, in terms of inspirations, aside from my ardent desire to hurl like 10 people on this planet into an active volcano, <laughs> I was drawing a lot on my love of primetime soaps. Um, I'm a huge fan of garbage media and I really love anything that involves like, like a really wealthy, thin woman whose face doesn't move, wearing a flowing diaphanous robe, walking around her huge house alone at night with like a lit candle and (laughs) saying, oh, but the stock market, I have to poison someone about it. Like, I just love that shit so much. I originally pitched the first concept for Eat the Rich, which of course evolved a little bit, as CW's Revenge meets Riverdale, but with people who eat people. I wanted to bring that feeling of kind of heightened drama and beautiful backdrops and uncomfortably wealthy people getting wrapped up in their own drama. And I wanted to take that and then also have a ton of gore. <laughs> yeah, I feel like cannibalism is a great way to get into gore uh, yeah. as as we see in the first issue. Why the gore? I'm curious about that. What was it that drew you to wanting to, to bring gore to the page? Well, I think that a lot of times we talk about the harm that wealthy people cause in sort of abstract ways. It can be really easy for that conversation to get 
confusing depending on who is controlling the conversation, right? We talk about like, oh, job creators and philanthropists and, oh, it's it's complicated because like wealthy people can cause harm, but also don't they create companies and isn't that important? And I kind of wanted to take away any level of plausible deniability in this book about who is doing harm, who is doing bad things. I also wanted to eliminate the level of nuance that is necessary in conversations about like class revolution, because I think that we can boil those conversations down pretty far, especially when we're talking to people who we feel have the same beliefs as us. And so we can get into sort of hyperbolic conversation that erases the reality of who is often really hurt by class warfare. But I wanted to go ahead and just erase that nuance completely, scrape it off, bleach it out and say, in this comic book series, there will be no question as to which direction the violence should flow. And in order to accomplish that, I needed to make it really undeniably fucked up. Yeah, I mean, eating people's pretty bad. Pretty bad. You know, it's it's not what you want. It's not <laughs> an ideal situation. <laughs> it's not what you want, to say the least. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I think that what was really cool about this piece, and you know, one of the immediate comps I've heard people say, and I, I equivocate on because it's not directly a narrative about race, at least of what I've seen so far, is, is Get Out. And I understand why that comp happens because it's got some of that eerie feel. It's the outsider entering the world of the rich. I mean, she literally goes through a transformational tunnel to get there. Like, it is really fascinating stuff. And obviously you love Jordan Peele. I'm curious though, what what do you think is specific here about class that you're grappling with versus maybe other intersections that also would map onto, you know, power and privilege, but that's not necessarily what you're grappling with at the moment. I really appreciate your perspective on the get out comp. Of course, I'm very flattered when people say that. I mean, that's like a real premium comp, especially these days in the world of horror. But I also feel a little discomfort because I'm like, that's out of my lane. Like, I, I'm i not qualified to, to write about race in the way that that movie is expertly discussing it. I am pretty darn qualified to write about wealthy people because I've had the immense misfortune of spending quite a bit of time around them over the course of my life and in my work prior to my time as a writer. And the thing that I'm grappling with in this series about class is how desirable wealth is. Uh, I think that it can be really easy to forget that, that in the world we live in, wealth means comfort. And it's something that a lot of people aspire to, even if we don't buy in to the narrative that being rich means you're good or being rich means that you should be allowed to know, for instance, access a vaccine way earlier than the more vulnerable sections of the population can get it. Even if we don't believe that, ultimately, we are all primates. We all desire comfort. We want to have the things we need. And when you experience wealth, it is hard not to want to be part of it. Even if you strip away all the messaging that says this is good and important and you should want it. So the POV character, Joey, is not wealthy, didn't grow up wealthy, grew up you know, lower middle class, put herself through law school, has worked her whole life, has never been part of this world of wealthy people, and is uncomfortable there. But and this was very important to me in the series, and I know that this is going to make some people yell at me in future issues. She wants to be part of this world. She wants these people to like and respect her. She wants to have the things that they have. And that's the thing that I'm really trying to wrestle with in this series in earnest is 
you know, you, you go into an environment where people are living in a way you've never been able to live and have a comfort and ease that you've never been able to have. It is not easy to push that away. Well, and, and it's seductive, right? Like that's, that's a piece of what it seems you're grappling with is the, the way that everyone around Joey is reinforcing it. Like you should act wealthy. You should make these wealthy choices. You should fit in, fit in, fit in, fit in, fit in. And, and though we as readers, and I would say as a white person myself, like we feel something for Joey. Maybe we've been in similar situations. There's this really beautiful point, and I, I think it's really integral to understanding the narrative you have going, where Joey goes down to the beach and she's sitting with the nanny, Petal, and she says, you know, let me know if I can help you because she wants to have her cake and eat it too, right? Like she wants to be rich, but she doesn't want to be like, she doesn't want people to look at her and go, oh, there's one of the riches, you know? She wants to be like, I'm relatable, I'm connected, but she still wants that that power and privilege. And I think that that duality, that conflict inside of her that she's not even aware of, what I see is that is being your, your commentary, at least in, in part, on whiteness, on how white people, even those of us who are or have been poor, we have a facility with whiteness that makes it where we can want to have our cake and eat it too. And I, I really found that, that, that scene, I reread it again today, and I just found it so striking. Not just as like sort of the moment of like, you need to fit in, but as the moment of like, and you want to, I can see. Yeah, it's to fit in with people who devalue others who aren't part of their community, right? People who use phrases like unskilled labor, which soapbox, unskilled labor doesn't fucking exist. Anyway, um, in order to fit in with those people, you have to strip yourself of things like the desire to offer help. You have to strip yourself of things like compassion for those who don't have the things you have. It's absolutely necessary. Otherwise, you know, your brain's going to split in half. In order to be part of a group that is defined based on exclusion, like for instance, whiteness and wealth, you have to do the work of extracting all this compassion and understanding and empathy from yourself. You have to start seeing other people as not quite people, not as much people as you are. And that's so much of what that scene is about. That scene is really Joey discovering that she has to choose. She can't be the person she is if she's going to be part of this world. She has to change who she is and how she thinks of other people in ways that are fundamentally transformative for a person. And at a certain point, if you keep choosing that, you can't come back from it. And it seems too for Joey, who's in a relationship with someone who is in that, you know, inner, 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 inner circle, that choice is in some ways already made. I feel like it's a spoiler for me to say anything about ah! that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Dun, dun, dun. We shall find out when we read future issues. <laughs> Everybody, earlier today I made myself a sandwich and I thought to myself, if I could rate and review this sandwich, I would give it five stars. And <laughs> I would say 
This sandwich is so incredible. It was the best sandwich I've had literally in days. And it was everything I wanted it to be. And that would be a positive review. That would help me see what audience responses were to my sandwich. And, you know, it would just be really a helpful system. I wonder if there's another situation where rating and reviewing would come in handy. Oh, huh. oh my God. No, what? you could rate and review this podcast and then that helps us find our audience and it helps us find whatever we've lost it helps us find what we've lost (laughs) helps us find our socks (laughs) our keys our cell phone people don't talk about it enough when you rate and review it really changes someone's life (laughs) yeah it's gonna change my life that's for sure and we like to read the reviews you know the ones that are positive that say soothing and nice things (laughs) five stars we'll give you five stars as a listener you give us five stars as a podcast five sandwiches (laughs) this podcast let's face it is five delicious sandwiches as a podcast network our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you but we also sell merch And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
writing an unlikable protagonist. It's like most of what I write. I just don't find likable protagonists that interesting to write. And I don't find them to have enough like real layers. And I do get pushback on my work from people who can't cope with that, who are like, mm-hmm. this person made decisions that I don't like. This doesn't feel like an instruction manual for how I should behave. And those folks are not going to enjoy future issues of this comic. (laughs) I am looking forward to hearing from them on social media. No, I'm not. Please don't contact me on social media if you don't like my comic. But I, oh my God, this is a total digression. But I did a book club appearance recently to discuss the Echo Wife. They were like, we're talking about the Echo Wife. We'd love to have you come in. And I know I'm close with someone who's in the book club. So I was like, oh, sure, why not? You know, like, I'll come and hang out with you guys. And I came into the book club and my friend who was part of the book club hadn't thought to ask ahead of time if they enjoyed the book. And I ended up spending like 30 minutes getting shouted at by this woman who was like, I just don't think that any person would make the decisions that this character makes that I don't like. And over the course of that, ended up really revealing a lot about her own marriage and her own relationship with her children that I I I shouldn't I shouldn't know about this stranger I've never met. Yeah, but boy, always telling, right? Like you're like, oh no, this is I didn't mean to open this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, this sounds. First of all, someone should check on your husband, and second of all, this sounds like a conversation (laughs) I shouldn't be part of. (laughs) Someone should check on your husband. Like, oh man, is he alive right now? This, you know what? I'm I'm sensing some holes in your story, friend. It is, you know, we talk about this a lot. And you know what the funny, I'm going to tell you a really fucking funny example. We may not even agree on it. But Sarah and I talk about this a lot where people in some ways are looking for morality plays. And it's like, that's not what all art is for. Some art, yes. And fair enough. If you enjoy that, please write it, read it, enjoy yourselves. I personally would rather see fucking train wrecks of people dealing with real problems because that is me. Yeah. I'm a train wreck in the world <laughs> trying to not do any more harm. And guess what? All the time I find out, done more harm. You know, like shit. <laughs> so that's what we're drawn to. But I was thinking about it with, um, oh, what's the what's the lesbian holiday movie? What's it fucking called? Oh, The Happiest Season. Happiest Season. <laughs> happiest Season. Oh my God, people so mad that Harper acted poorly. And it's like, yes, it's a film, in fact, where there must be some conflict. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't that bad because I feel like I read like horror. So I'm like, well, I mean, it's questionable. We'll say that what she does is pretty questionable. And at times it's like, yeah, she deserves to get broken up with, but she does get broken up with. So and she apologizes. Like, and I'm like, you are the same people who thought marriage story was like incredible. And I'm like, he punches the wall. Yeah. Like, I just like, why? You can't see. And you know, fair enough. I get it. We don't have to defend happiest season. It did just fine. But I do think there's some weird relationship that maybe is left over from reading books as a kid that weren't frog and toad or, or Bernicula where there's like, no moral, do whatever the fuck you want. Um, <laughs> you know, those are, I think, the best thing for children. Eat the fucking cookies. Who cares? Get them. Um, get, get those cookies off that shelf. You know how to use a ladder. You're free. <laughs> I will say about Marriage Story, we can't hold Adam Driver accountable for any of his actions because he is a centaur. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I do feel that trying to apply human morality. Corrected. I feel corrected and him. I appreciate it. Maybe he didn't get his handful of oats that morning and, you know, he's acting out about it. 
<laughs> Maybe he didn't get his hands full of oats. Jesus. <laughs> no, I completely agree about there's a a kind of childishness, like a self-infantilization that happens with some people and the desire to see a completely morally, I don't want to say morally like clean material. I also, and this is like my little tinfoil hat moment, the push for moral purity, I think is in many ways kind of like a, a Christo-fascist psyop, right? It's the yes. whose voices are actually starting that conversation. I feel the same way when I see young queer people losing their minds trying to gatekeep the queer community and who's allowed and what categories are allowed and do we have enough categories? Let's make some more categories where I'm like, I respect whatever self-exploration, examination, identification people are doing. But when we start excluding people, I'm like, the first voices who say we should exclude people are the voices who want all of us dead. So maybe we shouldn't start repeating what they say. Yeah. And that's how I feel about this moral purity and media thing. I'm like, I'm I'm sorry. Like, is there an evangelical pastor in charge of online discourse? What are we doing? Where's this moral purity coming from? I mean, for fuck's sake, even the Bible isn't a morally pure book. What are we what are we doing, guys? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think you're right that it's redoubled on queer people. Queer yes. people and trans people, there's this huge, huge expectation that all queer and trans characters act perfectly, never make bad decisions. And it's like, well, sorry, I make a ton of bad decisions all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's a. I understand the impulse. The impulse is if we make ourselves palatable enough yep. to yep. the straights, then they won't end up slaughtering us. But the problem yeah. is, there's no such thing as palatable Impossible. enough for the people who want us gone. The only thing that is palatable enough is our disappearance. And so if we keep on trying to pack ourselves into tighter and tighter little boxes to please them, it's like, I'm sorry, it's not going to work. So how about fuck it? Like, how about fuck it? Ugh. How about fuck it? Let's just whip your titties out at the parade. They're going to be mad <laughs> yes. that we're having a parade anyway. Yes. Whip yeah, those titties yeah, yeah. out. Like, and yes, the, please. The think of the children argument that some people so make gross, right? regarding all of this. I'm like, I fucking see you. That is somebody wearing a really high quality latex mask to make them look like they're part of the queer community. And yep. you rip it off and there's a heterosexual with an armband I don't care for underneath. Yeah, because the whole idea of that, I don't mind it as long as I don't have to see it, right? It's like one of those, like, every time people start on that discourse or it's like, think of the children, it's just like, oh, dang, you're really, you're really going for it, huh? Like, <laughs> we're, we're doing think of the children because, like, I've seen people, literally every public event I've ever been to, I've probably seen a couple getting way sexier than they needed to <laughs> maybe in public. But you know what? It's just part of going to public events, honestly. <laughs> so I just think it's always like really wild how like pride gets so centered on. It's so intentional, obviously, but mm -hmm. it's just like, yeah, okay. But I went to like Taste of Colorado and like had to like ask a couple to stop having sex on my car. So like, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I just think I think that, as you noted, it is just like an undue focus on how queer people live their lives, write their stories. <laughs> like, Yeah, we, we get held under a huge microscope. And obviously, this is much more severe for people of color, especially mm -hmm. trans, trans people of color. Mm -hmm. We just get this magnifying glass held to us at all times. And I'm like, you know what? If you're going to be looking that closely, you're going to see something you don't like. That's not my problem mm -hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Also, on think of the children. It's like, I am thinking of the children. I'm thinking of all yeah. the little trans and queer little fucking homos who are stuck in their house with their conservative-ass parents and can see these queer people doing whatever the fuck they want in public. I am thinking of them every time. And I'm like, you're going to get free. Yeah. You can do it. <laughs> You can do you can it. Escape. Yes. Yes. That's what I needed. The first time I saw Dykes on Bikes, it fucking destroyed me in the best possible way. Yeah, I for sure. I lost yes. it. I just like laid down weeping. And I was like, what do you mean people can just not be afraid to be visibly queer in public? Like, I don't have to be afraid of this thing inside of me. And so like, I get so sick of the arguments for all the reasons previously stated, but they're obviously made in bad faith, right? Like, these are not real arguments. No one actually cares about the fucking children. If you did, you would make surgeries on intersex children illegal. Oh, what? No, not those children. Not those children, right? It's just, ugh. No, I I don't think that they're real conversations. They're distractions. They're, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to have this conversation with me. And it's like, uh, actually, we don't. I'm sorry. I am too busy falling down on the floor in front of a group of women on motorcycles to be listening to this conversation. (laughs) I'm too busy proposing to every dyke on a bike that just went past me, okay? None of them went for it, but I'm going to do it again next year is all I'm saying every year. I'm too busy crafting my elaborate marriage proposal to Ruby Riot, who just debuted on AEW the other night. I don't have time for any conversations about what children should or shouldn't see. Oh, I love that. So, you know, we've been talking about queerness, and I think in, in you know, in some of your works, it's a little bit more immediately what we might label queer or trans. You know, I, I think I can see the, the queerness and the transness in it, because for me, queerness and transness is anti-capitalist. It is talking about the way that the rich quite literally predate on the rest of us. But I'm curious for you, where does the queerness come in to eat the rich? How how does it influence it? Is it the framing? Are we about to meet some cool characters we haven't met in issue one? Like, tease it for me. Okay, all right. How do I do this without spoiling it? Um, I keep asking you spoiler questions. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. Uh, I mean, because I could, There, there is like a major plot line throughout the series that is very explicitly queer that I can't, I don't want to unleash too soon. So I will talk about the less explicit queerness, which is as a queer non-binary person, I have been in a lot of situations where I go to a big party where everybody seems to know how to dress and act, and I'm doing my best to perform the exact same thing as them, and it all feels wrong, and I don't know why. And Joey, the protagonist of Eat the Rich, encounters that in this book. She gets taken to a party where she's supposed to know on instinct how to dress and how to act. And no one can really give her guidance. And she can tell she's getting it wrong. And everyone there is letting her know she's getting it wrong without saying it outright. And she just can't figure out what she's missing. And that is a very queer experience. I spent a lot of time kind of informally in the closet. Like if someone asked me, I would say that I wasn't straight. But Nobody asked me. And I also like wore a lot of cardigans and gave myself bangs and was like, I'm pulling this off. I'm nailing it. Um, No one has to know. I don't have to make it obvious. And the feeling of that is the feeling of going into a room full of people who know all the rules just off the top of their head. No problem. 
and having to try and figure out what the rules are on the fly. <laughs> I just cracked up because I'm literally wearing a cardigan and have bangs. <laughs> I was like, Sarah, you, I was thinking, I was fucking thinking exactly that. And I almost made a bangs joke about Sarah's, you know, still in her like cognito. But then I was like, I don't know how to deliver on that without sounding like an asshole. But now I've done this instead. No, because I know what you mean. There's been a million times. And it's like, that's something that I always tell people is I'm like, it's totally normal to feel at odds sometimes with your own, you know, like greater queer community. Like there mm-hmm. are times when we will all feel excluded. There are times whenever, you know, it's like I remember being like younger and being like, maybe if I cut my hair like really short, people will like, you know, basically respect my boundaries too, because it's all a thing of like, it's annoying when like, Maybe a queer person is like, oh, like she's straight or something like that. But mostly it's people on the outside of it, right, who are kind of trying to instill like, but you're wearing a cardigan. <laughs> you know, exactly. like. And of course, I don't mean to imply that you have to present a certain way to be valid as queer. What I mean is sure. I, I spent a lot of time taking advantage of the way that straight people make assumptions based on presentations yes. mm-hmm. by being like, I'm dressed up as exactly the thing you expect. And they won't ask me any questions. And they didn't. They never did. They were just, God, I remember I was at this horrible event that was like team building through, we weren't calling it DEI back then, but it was basically DEI. And the the organizer set down sticky notes on the floor with categories like race, gender, sexuality, class, religion, stuff like that. And was like, line up behind the one that you feel most marginalized in. It was me and one other person in the sexuality line. And I was like, this is it. This person's gonna gonna realize that I'm queer. I was super freaked out about it. And then she looked at me and she was like, you too, huh? I just feel like not satisfied by my husband. Oh my and God. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. Okay, I'm I'm in a crowd that is at no risk of ever clocking me. <laughs> <laughs> that is the greatest thing I have ever heard. You know what really influences my life? How bad of sex I'm having. <laughs> like her husband really... was in the room too i was like oh boy oh, wow. <laughs> wow she was like you know what we're gonna throw down in public it's it's time it's time you need to fuck me better whoa all right is that not diversity equity and inclusion did i did i misread the room i feel mm. marginalized because my husband won't eat pussy get it together <laughs> dude yeah Wow. Um, I was going to relate it to a a personal story of mine, which I think is like the perfect intersection of what I hear you saying and tell me where I'm wrong. But when I was in college, I got invited to like the president's house because I was involved in too many things and not studying enough. And I was like, great, I'm going to go to this thing. I got my little fancy dress. I got my like pea coat. So I look like a, you know, a normal person at this college and I like walk in and then you know there's like the place where you hang your coats and I'm like perfect I know how to hang a coat tra la 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 hang up my coat as I'm walking back down the stairs I realize there's a coat check there are people <gasps> who are hired to hang my coat for me and my fucking poor ass queer ass didn't even clock them I was like why would anyone serve me <laughs> And so I come out and I'm like, oh God, oh what what have I done? And they're like, they're like, you know what, dude, it's cool. Like, we're cool. I know you're I remember you from work study. You're cool. You're cool. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And that to me is exactly that Joey moment, right? It's like you walk in with your confidence and you're like, I'm gonna be myself. I'll carry my own backpack because I am a real person. <laughs> it's like, oh no, 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 yeah, no, no, no. It- 
it's just a whole other level, right? You When you are at a certain level of kind of ambient wealth in the atmosphere around you, it's polite to do things for yourself. It's polite not to ask or expect other people to do things for you. And then there's this other level that all of a sudden you jump to and it's polite to respect that the staff is there to do a job. It's polite to let someone take your coat off for you. It's polite to let someone put your napkin in your lap for you. And if you try and do these things for those staff members, you're being an asshole who doesn't respect their their ability to do the job that they've been hired to do and their expertise Mm. at that job. And the transition between those is excruciatingly painful and awkward. And this is a lot of what Joey is going through in this first issue is like, she wants to make a good impression. She wants to be polite. She realizes halfway through the book that everything she knows about being polite and making a good impression does not apply on this new planet she's arrived on that's made of money. In some of my very unfortunate encounters with very wealthy people, I have dealt with that exact coat check thing. And it is, it's mortifying because you're like- So embarrassing. You're like, I know how to exist in the world. And then all of a sudden the world changes and you have no idea what to do to be nice to people. And that's the worst part, right? I try my best as often as I can to be kind as I can. And when all of a sudden it turns out that the things I think of as kind are unkind, I just want to peel my skin off. It's it's horrible. It's a horrible feeling. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean, I think class is such a... We talk about it all the time. Sarah and I are both, uh, to varying degrees, uh, not wealthy, we'll put it. Uh, and, you know, different backgrounds, but grew up fairly similarly where it was like, oh, I couldn't have a whole list. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I didn't know what comics were. Um, you know, it's like different based on where you are, et cetera. But I think that that divide that you can feel in class is so unique because it's, it is one of embarrassment too. It is, it's one of like uh, embarrassment. It's one of like, for me as a, as a working class person, like I want to do things for myself. I'm independent. I want to hang my fucking coat. Like I don't want someone else to hang my goddamn coat. That's weird. But that's not how the rules work, as you say. And so I think that's such an interesting entree into what what rapidly escalates for Joey, right? <laughs> like It's like <laughs> your backpack, what drink you choose. Oh, we're eating people. And that is incredible. I think it, it makes it such a beautiful horror. And, and you know, that last page turn where you're like, oh my fucking God, in issue one, I just, I know we have beautiful things to come in, in, in the following issues. So, you know, where can people learn more about you, Sarah? Where can they find you online uh, and on social media? Um, you can learn more about me and all my work and get links to buy a hundred copies of everything I've ever written for you and all your best friends at www.sarahgailey.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-G-A-I-L-E-Y, which is my name. I can also be found on social media. Um, I'm updates only on Twitter because Twitter is a nightmare dimension. And I'm slowly but surely ramping up on Instagram. My handle on both of those is Gailey Frey. That's G-A-I-L-E-Y-F-R-E-Y. I'm also on Tumblr under that handle. I don't know why anyone would follow me there, but if you feel like it, you can. I reblog a lot of stuff about cats. And you can also, if you go to my website, you can sign up for my newsletter, Stone Soup, which is all about building community. Right now, we're running this really cool series called Building Beyond that's all about world building, where I talk to different people about how we can build worlds so much more easily than we think we can. And I would love to see you all there. Awesome. And a sign up. 
right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. It's a free newsletter. And there is also a paid tier where throughout this year, we've been sharing all kinds of fun experiences to stay connected during the, again, nightmare dimension that is the pandemic. Man, I tell you what, though, like newsletters, they've been really getting me through. I subscribe maybe to like four or five and my email is usually just one million things. And every now and again, I'll be like, oh, (laughs) newsletter. (laughs) It always feels to me like I'm getting a little treat from a friend. Totally. I love it. Amazing. And and so for Eat the Rich, issue one is out now. So make sure to pick it up at your local comic book store. Issue two is coming out uh, at the end of September, toward the end of September. So make sure you get it on your poll list. I know I'm about to go email my local comic book store and say, hey, wait a second, second. I need some Eat the Rich up in here. And they're going to say, what does that mean? And I'm going to say, oh, right, these people. And then they will get it for me. So make sure you check out Eat the Rich. I, I can honestly say I've never read anything quite like it. And it is delightful. That was my chef's kiss, if you couldn't quite hear it. And yeah, thank you for joining us today, Sarah. Sarah Century, you know I love you. (laughs) Kate, thanks for editing everything for us so I sound cooler than I am. Listeners, (laughs) don't you leave us. We'll see you in two weeks. a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.